so many sentiments in that song that uh, can be reflected in the Galatian epistle and we're turning again to the Galatian epistle this morning into chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I'm reading from the NIV, Galatians chapter 3. And the particular <coughs> attention is going to be on verses 19 and 20, <coughs> and onwards from verse 19. But let me read from um, <coughs> let me read from verse 15. Hopefully, we will get it in context. If you're not familiar with the Galatian epistle, chapter three, let me read from verse 15. Or writing to the Galatians, he says, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promise the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people but and to your seed meaning one person who is Christ what I mean is this the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise for if the inheritance depends on the law then it is no longer dependent on a promise but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in the charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his uh, precious word this morning. So here in the uh, Galatian epistle we are looking at Paul's writing to the Galatians who are churches in trouble. Churches in the Roman province of Galatia who are in trouble. Paul has um, presented the gospel to them on that first missionary journey. He has uh, gone through the region of Galatia and he has proclaimed the gospel of free grace which means that by accepting Christ as your Saviour and 
receiving him and receiving that atonement for your sin, being born again of the Spirit of God, you are saved. That was the message, that is the message of the gospel, and that was the message that Paul preached to the Galatians. But when he left and moved on, there were a group of individuals coming into the church we know or describe as Judaizers. They were Jews who uh, believed that uh, salvation required the keeping of the law, the Jewish law, and they were confusing the Galatians and saying, unless you keep the Jewish law, unless you are circumcised, unless you fulfill all the rituals, unless you live a certain type of life, you cannot be saved. The same message is proclaimed today under other guises, Arminianism, uh, and the message of the cults, it's all the same. Jesus is not enough. Jesus cannot save completely. You must do your bit. Jesus is not sufficient. And uh, so we saw that Paul uses in this chapter, speaking now as he defends the gospel of grace, and that's what he's doing in chapter 3 and 4. In the first two chapters, remember, he was uh, defending his own reputation because the Judaizers were mocking him and uh, bringing his uh, bringing his apostleship into question. So there in the first two chapters he defends that, but here in the third and fourth chapter he's defending this gospel, the gospel of salvation that he proclaims. And he's using the example, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks at least, you see that he's been using the example of Abraham to show that... Um, even Abraham, even the patriarch of the Jewish nation, was saved through faith. Faith in Christ, indeed. Faith in the seed that was to come. Faith in that uh, future individual who would save his people from their sin. The promised seed, the promised saviour. We noted last time that the Jews were confused over the different covenants. They were confused between the Mosaic covenant, that is the law covenant. We begin to see it here in, the, in the Exodus chapter 19 that Matthew was reading there, the becoming of the Mosaic covenant, and uh, they considered that to the exclusion of anything else, to the exclusion of the more ancient covenant they'd forgotten really. They hadn't brought to bear in the whole picture the Abrahamic covenant that promised salvation by grace alone. And they found it hard to reconcile the covenants, the covenant of works with the covenant of grace. And they ended up with contradictory principles. They ended up saying, well, Jesus is a saviour, but he's not quite the saviour. Jesus has done this, but he hasn't done it all. And they ended up with these contradictory principles. And again, I say this is just what Satan wants just the way Satan wants to confuse people, lead them astray. And this is, again, I say, the teaching of the cults. Um, <clears throat> now, in verses 10 to 13, and we noticed this uh, last time uh, we looked at the Galatian epistle, that uh, in verses 10 to 13, Paul shows the inadequacy of the Mosaic Covenant, the inadequacy of the law to save as it set impossible standards to keep. Paul reminds the Galatians uh, that cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words 
of the law to carry them out completely. Deuteronomy takes it from Deuteronomy 27, 26. So you go through Deuteronomy, you read Deuteronomy, you see all those laws, all those conditions, and then it says at the end, it says unless you keep all of these laws completely and perfectly, you cannot be saved. In fact, cursed is anyone who does not keep everything that is written in the law. And Paul shows as well in those verses, he shows the superiority and the complete uh, the completeness of the Abrahamic covenant to save. So the Mosaic covenant could not save, but Paul shows in verses 15 to 18 the completeness and the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant to save uh, and uh, to do what the law could not do. Romans chapter 8 Verse 3, we read there, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be, for, might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we can fully meet the requirements of the law, not through ourselves, but through Jesus Christ. He kept the law on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. God became a man and lived a life that was perfect, died upon that cross, and bore the sin for you and for me. Now, the covenant of grace, I remind you again, was given first to Adam, then it was given to Abraham and later on it was given to David because all those promises that God made are the same promise. It's a promise of sending a seed. It's a promise of sending someone who would come from the seed of, who would come through the lineage of mankind and particularly through the Jewish lineage when we get to Abraham and David this was the promised Messiah who would come. And Adam and Abraham and David and every generation that believed in that seed, it believed in that coming Saviour, would be justified just as Abraham was. Now Paul again tells us that the covenant cannot be altered. It cannot be it being ratified by God himself. Again, I remind you Hebrews chapter 6, 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. So the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace, is a covenant that is absolutely certain absolutely sure, being ordained by God and God in Christ fulfilling all the conditions of the law, all the conditions that God himself had laid down. What a wonderful truth. What wonderful truths we find here in this wonderful Galatian epistle. What wonderful truths it is. What a wonderful fact it is that God loved us so much that he should come and that he should take the human form, he should take on uh, a human uh, form and die in our place. But of course the question remains now, what, 
And Paul raises it here, challenges it, puts it in these words. What was the purpose then of the Mosaic Covenant? If salvation is accomplished through divine grace, what was the purpose of the law of Moses? What was, why did God give the law of Moses? And Paul now goes on to explain that the law of Moses is not opposed to grace, but is in fact a necessary means of seeking salvation by grace alone. So in verse 19, and I mentioned these are the verses I want to look at particularly today. In verse 19, Paul explains the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not just represent one party, but God is one. Now, the first thing that might confuse you, and it certainly confused the Bible commentators over the years, is this mention of the term angels. Why does Paul mention angels? What is that about? The law was established, we find in Exodus chapter 19, and you've read it today, you can go back and read it again. The, the law was established directly by God. We're in Exodus 19.3, then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. God was speaking directly to Moses. He didn't require angels. So what's this? Why are we talking here about angels? In fact, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, if you were to turn to that, it reads, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So God was speaking to Moses directly, and yet we have here this mention of angels. What was that about? It's not just there that we find it. We find it in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, where Stephen is about to be stoned. He's defending the gospel. He's the first Christian martyr. And uh, there he is giving the defense of the gospel and showing how Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Verse 37 there in chapter 7 we read uh, Stephen saying, This is the Moses who told the Israelites God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors and he received the living word to pass on to us. So Stephen is saying there, there is a, an, a, there is a presence of angels there. There is a, a reason for highlighting the fact that there was an angel involved in that. Again, if you were to turn to the Hebrew epistle in chapter 2, and remember this was a Jew writing mainly to Jews because he's the writer, whether it was Paul or whoever, he's proclaiming the gospel and, uh, and dealing with certain issues and different problems, really the same problems we're finding here that the Jews were having with the gospel. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says this, we must be the, mo the most careful, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift from, away from it. For since the message spoken through angels was binding 
and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? So there again, we find the mention of angels. Now, as I say, this has confused Bible commentators a little bit, and there are various interpretations of this, but the, the two main interpretations I, I think are, are here. One is the idea that um, when we talk about the angel of the Lord, on certain occasions it seems to be we're talking about God himself. If you look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse uh, 1 onwards, you find uh, Moses there out in the wilderness and he comes into contact with the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock, we read, of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within the bush. Do not come closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then in verse 6, at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So there it seems to be, uh, and we find in other places too, if you go back in the story of Abraham, you find that uh, God comes to Abraham and uh, at times it, it almost appears, the language almost appears that uh, the angel of the Lord at times appears to be God, at times it doesn't. So, you know, that's a little bit something to, uh, that can be a little bit confusing there. But uh, it does seem at times that it's uh, meant that God is speaking directly to uh, people and yet to, to Abraham and yet there was this uh, description of the angel of the Lord. Or the other alternative, and I, I believe this is really the right interpretation, it may refer to God being accompanied and being surrounded by angels uh, and their witness of the events that were actually taking place. Um, you find there in the uh, in, in Exodus and chapter 19 there that there is mention of trumpets or a trumpet, a loud, loud trumpet. That, that wasn't, that wasn't uh, a trumpet of the, um, of the Israelites. That was a trumpet coming from the mountain and there was smoke and there was fire and there was uh, lightning. It was a, a very vivid, a very uh, audible a very tangible scene that we see there. Now if you turn to Revelation in chapter 8 and verse 2 through to 5, we read this. Uh, when the, uh, when the uh, seven seals opened, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came uh, stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hands. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth 
and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So that was the presence of angels. That was the involvement of angels. There were trumpets. There were rumblings. There was thunder. There were flashes of lightning. And there was earthquake. Is that familiar? Does that remind you a little bit of the book of Exodus and, uh, and the bringing of the law of Moses? It was accompanied uh, by those sort of, that type of phenomena. And I believe that when the, uh, when the uh, Jews were talking about this accompaniment of angels, they're actually talking about that, the phenomena, because you, we know that uh, God uh, on occasions uh, is described as being accompanied by the angelic hosts. In fact, uh, any king is accompanied by an entourage of uh, those who wait upon him. And uh, it's the same picture we find in scripture of God being accompanied by great entourage of angels. Remember that even Jesus on earth, uh, when he came to the end of his life, uh, when he could have escaped, uh, he said, don't you think if I called upon God, he would send 72,000 angels? 72,000 angels would come and rescue me off this cross if I called upon them. So even so, the, the message, I think this is the, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. In fact, I'm sure in my own mind he is. Even, he says, even though the message came accompanied by angels, accompanied by this phenomena, and uh, via a mediator, and the mediator, of course, was Moses. So you've got this phenomena, and you've got this great leader, uh, and Paul is saying, even though it comes in that way, the law came accompanied by angels via this mediator Moses. It was entirely of God and in keeping with all God's consistent plan and purpose. And it would seem that some of the Jews had lost sight of God. They had elevated Moses to this position. They have elevated him to this position of supreme authority. And they gloried in him and they gloried in the phenomena and they gloried in the law to such an extent that everything else went out of their minds. And they forget that when, whenever we come to the word of God, there is a balance that needs to be. And you need to take the whole counsel of God. And this is one of the big problems that we, we have today because we hear of these leaders, these preachers who are put on this uh, pedestal to the point where everything else is obliterated. And they come surrounded by uh, an entourage and so-called miraculous signs and everybody gets so caught up or certain people get so caught up in that that they listen to everything they say. And they may begin well. And they may have started well, but you know as time goes on, some of these leaders, they, they go completely off rail. But everybody is so caught up with this leader and so caught up with the phenomena and so caught up with what happened that nothing else matters and they fail to go back to the word of God. And they forget to go back to the, uh, to, to the rules and the teaching and the guidance that is given in the word of God. All the truth. 
and they don't come back, and if they did come back, they would understand, they would begin to realize just how off-beam these teachers are, but instead of that, they're so caught up with it. And you know, there was a danger of this for these Jews, and it was very clear danger that they were absolutely infatuated with Moses. They were infatuated with angels. They were infatuated with phenomena. And they forgot about the whole counsel of God. They forgot about the Abrahamic covenant. They forgot to get the balance and keep the balance. And that's so important for you and for me in these days. There was nothing wrong with Moses. There was nothing wrong with the phenomena. But the danger was that they forgot there was a whole counsel of God and to get the balance right. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul warns us, doesn't he, in the verse First verse there, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He goes on in verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. So neither the one who plants nor the one who, who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. See, Paul had to keep reminding people that these, these servants were good servants. Cephas was good. Apollos was good. Paul was good. And they were surrounded by miraculous signs as in the, in the early days of, 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 of ministry. And yet Paul says, don't lose, don't lose sight of the fact that it's God, it's the word of God, it's the whole counsel of God that's important. And you need to keep your feet on the ground and you need to be sensible. Don't glory in men, don't glory in phenomena. Glory in God. Paul warned in the, in the first chapter of the Galatian epistles, and we looked at this when we were going through that first chapter, Galatians 1 verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that was preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. If it's supposed to be surrounded by angels and it's not the gospel, don't listen to it. If the preacher gets up and he's got a, a great name and a great reputation, if he doesn't bring the gospel, don't listen to him, says the Apostle Paul. Such preachers, teachers are under, if they don't change their ways, under God's curse. Now Paul explains that the law was added. It was added. And it was added because of transgression, until the seed of promise had come. Paul has already explained that nothing can be added or changed in the covenant of grace. But the law of Moses, is, if you, it can be described in this way, uh, like an appendix to the covenant of grace. Now, those of you who have a legal background, or those of you who have any understanding, I'm sure most of you do, of, uh, of law and uh, legal documents, you will understand that sometimes there is a, uh, there, there is a contract and, uh, but, uh, and the contract is, stands on its own, but there is an appendix to that contract. If you um, look in the uh, encyclopedias, 
uh, online or wherever. This is what one of the legal encyclopedias had, the way it, it describes an appendix. It says, once a contract is made, then it is enforceable in court. That's, if you like, the Abrahamic covenant. An appendix doesn't add any new contract terms which are enforceable provisions in the contract or change the party's obligation in the contract. It is a useful document, it is a useful addition to describe or to help in the understanding of the contract. Many legal documents have been written, written statements of law, and there is an appendix that is relevant information relating to the law itself. Nothing in the appendix changes the contract, but only acts to assist and to accomplish the purpose of that contract. Now, if you're still with me, Paul describes two purposes for the law. And the first relates to a specific time frame. A specific time frame. The law of God was given for a specific time frame. And it was the time frame that began with Moses. And it began when the people of Israel were in danger of losing their identity and becoming a, uh, a nation that was absorbed into other cultures. Remember in the land of Egypt, they'd almost lost their identity in the land of Egypt as they were, uh, as they were slaves in that land. They, they took on board the, uh, the, 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 the behaviors of the Egyptians. They took on board the, the gods of the Egyptians, many of them. They, they took on board the food and the lifestyle of the Egyptians. And they, they virtually been a, a, were being absorbed into the Egyptian culture until Moses comes along and leads these people out. You see, Israel had to survive. We need to understand, and I believe we do understand and appreciate in this church, the importance of Israel, even today, the importance of Israel. Israel had to survive if the promised Savior was to come, yet even after the Exodus, they appeared a very vulnerable people. The pagan nations posed the dangers around them through war, through disease, through interbreeding, corrupting their society, corrupting them as a, a people and leading them astray to be absorbed into the, into the various communities. And this is why you find throughout the uh, Exodus, you find uh, time and time again, you find the temptation of these people to just become absorbed into society rather than maintaining their unique identity. Even on Mount Sinai, we find Israel creating a golden calf as when Moses goes up the mountain to talk to God, he's delayed. And what do the people of Israel do? They create a golden calf to, to worship. And when Moses comes down the mountain, they're having an orgy. And they're worshipping this golden calf. And it's very clear that something had to be done because they were losing their identity. God had to create a law system that would control them, that would preserve them as a pure people, as a moral people, as a healthy people, until the promised Savior came. You know, history testifies how 
nations have flourished uh, on discipline and hygiene and good laws only to fall to corruption and to moral decay. If you take the Roman Empire, for example, that great Roman Empire that stretched virtually across the world, that uh, we have so many good things coming from uh, from that Roman culture. We have uh, we have roads, we have a legal system, we we, we have a lot of good things. We we uh, the hygiene was was good. There were there were so many things that were good in the Roman Empire until moral decay set in. Corruption set in and the Roman Empire fell and, uh, and was destroyed. That great Roman Empire destroyed through inward corruption and moral decay. God's law is good. Maintaining standards, maintaining a healthy lifestyle. And you and I ignore it at our peril. You know, here Christians say, well, you know, I don't need to bother about the law of God anymore. I don't need to bother about the Ten Commandments anymore because I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I don't need to bother about that, don't you? Don't you? You know, we ignore the Ten Commandments at our peril. The Bible says that God chastises those who he loves, brings there, and treats every child within his family in that way. If you think you're getting away with stuff and God isn't chastising you, you need to ask the question of whether you're a Christian or not. Psalm 19 and verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Is that the way you feel about the Lord of God? It goes on in verse 11 to say, By then your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. There is great reward. We don't ignore the Ten Commandments. We uphold the Ten Commandments. Jesus himself upheld the Ten Commandments and the Lord of God. There was nothing wrong with it. It just was not enough to say. Paul also reminds us here that the law was required until the seed, until Jesus had come. The book of Hebrews chapter 8 again, we read there, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Verse 10, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after this time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So God has written the law of God in our hearts. If you're a born-again Christian, if you are truly a Christian, the law of God is written on your heart. It's something not external, it's something internal, it's something you will want to do, you will want to obey God, you will realize the seriousness of sin and the ugliness and the, uh, 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 and the terrible consequences for Jesus of your sin. We don't start looking at pornography on the TV or allowing those things to enter our mind. Why? Because the Bible tells us 
and the uh, and the, the 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 commands of God and the and the law of Moses tells us that we don't do that. We don't go stealing. Why? Because the law's written on our hearts. We don't need we the law's written on those tablets, but it's also written on our hearts. We don't steal because we love God and we want to obey Him, and it would be obnoxious for us to do that. And all the ten we don't take God's name in vain. I, I hear Christians, even to, I hear Christians using God's name in vain, time and time again. They think it's okay. You know, if the Lord of God's written on your heart, the Holy Spirit will remind you that that name is precious. That name is important. We don't, we don't, we don't behave like the world. We don't use the language of the world. We don't use dirty, uncouth language because we're Christians, and the law of God is written on our heart. And we follow Jesus and honour him. But that's the first reason. But the second function of the law we find here is that it was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster. Now, uh, Alistair mentioned this last week to us that the, uh, the law of God is a, is a tutor. The Greek word, a wonderful Greek word, pedagogos. Pedagogos. Wish I'd known that, that word when I was at school. I could have gone to my teacher and said, good morning, Pedagogos. And I might have got an admiring look or a very long detention, one or the other. But the word Pedagogos, it, 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 it means a tutor. It means a trusted servant who ensured, in the days of the early church, it ensured a, a child... Uh, got the teaching that they needed. The 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 the, the pedagogos, the tutor, would make sure that the child went to school. That they they did their homework on some of the uh, some of the these tutors who were actually did the school teaching them themselves. But they were very very important. They were the ones who made sure the kids got educated, made sure the 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 kids attended school, made sure the kids learnt their lessons. Now. Schoolmasters and tutors vary, and uh, some teachers are very good, some tutors are very good. They are kind, they are skillful, they make learning pleasant, they inspire their students, while other teachers do quite the opposite. I won't have you in tears about my school days, but there were teachers, and we all know school teachers, some school teachers are just inspiring, aren't they? They just point us in the right direction, and we we want to learn, and want to, and, and learning becomes a pleasure because we learn in that way. We're taught in that way. And then there are other teachers using the same syllabus, the same teaching, the same truths, if you like, and yet they make life wretched. They make learning almost impossible. They make it cold. They bring discouragement. They bring misunderstanding. And you know that the way that we use the law as Christians is absolutely vital. We can use the law in a way that is encouraging and inspiring and causing people to turn to the cross and find in Jesus a saviour. We can tell them that God loves you, but you know the law is going to condemn you. And we use the law in a, in a way that actually causes people to, to understand that they are under the judgment of God. 
but we do it in a way that is loving and we do it in a way that is that, that, that allows people to understand that God didn't put those laws to condemn us, but he did put them in just to guide us and to point us towards the cross of Calvary. And I, I've heard Christians in the past, and of course we might say that Christians in the Edwardian era were maybe at danger, many of them, for doing this, and they would use the law as a judgment, and they would, they, they would bring judgment down on people. They would like to talk about hell and like to talk about the punishment that's awaiting you, and they, they're supposedly believed in the salvation by grace alone. But they would use the law and it would put people off and people would, would run and they were afraid of God and they, were, they didn't want anything to do with God because of that. But then there were others who said, look, Jesus loves you, but the, that law tells you where you are. It tells you that you're a sinner. It tells you that you're not going to heaven, but God wants you in heaven. It's how we use the law, isn't it? Some will be, by the law, will be pointed to the cross of Calvary and find him as saviour. Others will be pointed down a road of legalistic rubbish, down a dark and lonely road to a lost eternity. People trying to, thinking they're going to be okay, going to church, being religious, doing religious stuff, and yet never finding their way to the cross and finding their way to heaven. Paul tells us here, just in, as we come to a conclusion here, Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what covenant, coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 tells us there, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, the law of Moses was an appendix. It was to explain the doctrine of grace. It was to explain the need for grace. It was explained to show us who we are, where we are outside of Christ and point us lovingly to the cross of an outstretched saviour with nails in his arms, in his hands, welcoming us. Through the law, the Bible tells us, the whole world is declared a prisoner through sin, Paul tells us, so that we might turn and receive free grace. Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. It points us to him. May God bless his word. Let's just pray together. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for, even for the problems in the Galatian church that allowed Paul to write this letter to explain things that are still so relevant for us today. A world that still has the same problems, a world that still needs the same saviour, a world that still needs to understand the purpose of the law. Help us, we pray, to continue to proclaim the glorious, balanced message of the gospel, that people may come 
and find Jesus for themselves. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.